Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Oh, come on. Good morning, church. I'm not the dentist for the love. What was that? Open your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 6. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name is Mark. As Zoe said earlier, I agree with her. It's our privilege to be on the ministerial staff here, and we're glad you're with us. We're in this series called The Gospel, looking at taking Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's stories of Jesus and putting them together in a chronological time frame of how we believe it may have played out and uh, learning about who Jesus is and then learning about the power of the gospel available to us and anyone we meet. And uh, so we're glad you're a part of that. Today's text, when chosen, was one of those texts, to be honest with you, Michael and I had a debate about whether or not it had enough meat on the bones to bring into the series. And the more we thought about it, we thought, let's go ahead. And of course, he agreed to that because I was the one who had to preach it. But when I looked at it, I'm really grateful we did because uh, there's a couple of things I learned from it that I wouldn't have taken the time to learn. It's a, a very short passage. It's more factual than it is inspirational. And yet it's important. So this text is one of those New Testament passages that sets us up to understand other texts better. So let's go ahead and read Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 19, and uh, then we'll walk through what it means to us in our discipleship. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called the disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And that's our text this morning. But I want us to learn a couple of things about this text, because what Jesus does in this moment is inspirational to us, and can be if we'll get away from just the facts of it. And to see the value of it. So the first point I want to make that I've learned from this is that this was a very significant choice Jesus made for the world, not just for these men. It was significant, not just to these 12 men. It became significant to every single one of us, whether we're aware of it or not. Again, verse 12. One of these days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Now, we're in the period of recognition. If you've been with us through this journey, you know that we have uh, identified five major movements in the story of Jesus, from his arrival to the obscurity, the period of time where he wasn't well-known, to this time of recognition, we're calling it, where Jesus becomes more popular to some and less popular to others, where those who didn't have power went right to him and were drawn to his message, and those who had power struggled with it. And we might look down on that and say, well, you know, those who had power were just threatened and afraid, but we get that way too. And it may be something minor. It may be where you park at work or where you park your behind at church and someone you come in and a visitor sitting in a row that you've had since 1974. <laughs> and I know we're, we're not petty people. We would, we would simply go, what a blessing that they're here, but not always. Or if your parking spot is filled on a Sunday morning, we get that when we have certain things the way we like it, someone else changing that and taking away our authority from that is difficult. Jesus knew that he, was, he could feel the hatred. He could feel the hostility. And he knew that they, according to scripture, he knew what their end result would be. 
is that to eliminate the threat, you eliminate the person. And so the Bible tells us one of the most significant parts of this text. Jesus went at night to pray. He just spent all night, went up to the mountain, went out into the wilderness where there were no, there might've been some shepherds out with their flocks possibly, but he went into a place that nobody hung out. He got away from the crowd and he isolated himself. He went to the mountain to pray. Last week, if you were with us, we went through a passage of scripture where we were challenged by how Jesus saw scripture. We were challenged that Jesus saw the Bible to be an inspired message from God to each of us. And that we should, and I want to use this term specifically, that we need to carve out spaces in our life to spend time with the inspired word of God. And we should do that every day. Not in a legalistic fashion. Because you might study something on a Thursday and need all day Friday, Saturday, and Sunday to process it. And that's great because you're still spending time with the text. But we were challenged, and I hope you did that. And it's going to sound like I'm being a little bit cute. I'm not intending to be. I said it first hour and I went, oh, I'd be offended by me in this moment. So I want to warn you in advance. What I'm challenging you is if you took Michael's little cheat sheet on how four simple steps to study scripture and you took that, over a thousand of you took those last week and there's more in the foyer if you want them. But over a thousand people took them and I prayed all week that those thousand people would try it. But here's what I know probably happened. Some of us had good intentions, but just we got into our routine. We didn't carve out time and we made no time. So here's what we do. Repent and try again. Change the behavior that's keeping you from opening yourself up to that. Because here's what I want to point out. Jesus studied the scriptures. He wasn't born with a computer chip that gave him the entire text in his memory. He studied the scriptures. He memorized the scriptures. He could quote the scriptures. If it was important for him to do that, can we also conclude it's very important for us to do that? Can we also conclude that it wasn't easy for him to do that, but he did what he needed to do to learn it? And if so, then can we also conclude that we ought to put in the same amount of effort and time that he did if he needed to? Which leads me to the point that I just made. If Jesus would spend a night in prayer, then the question is not guilt-producing, The question is a challenge. Should we not also spend time in prayer? If Jesus, son of God, knew that as the pressure was mounting on him, that he needed to get away from the crowds and the adulation. See, some of the crowd loved him so much, they loved him too much. They wanted to make him become king. And he wasn't willing to do that because he didn't want to be that kind of king. And some of them wanted to kill him because he was taking their authority. And Jesus got away from the crowd. See, the crowd's either going to love you too much or hate you too much. And the place you need to be is in the presence of God. So not only do we need to know the inspired word of God, we need to be people that pray, that spend time in prayer. Now, I was talking with Elijah backstage, and I'm a little bit nervous about this because I certainly don't want to promote myself in this capacity at all. But I want to tell you that it can be a real simple thing, too. My morning routine is, uh, I like to get in the office before most people get in, and I just shut my door, and I have tea time. Now, I wish it was golf. I wish I golfed with God. That would be awesome. But I have tea time, T-E-A. I don't drink coffee. I do enjoy tea. And so I'll, I'll brew a big cup of tea, and I'll sit in my puffy chair in my office, and I'll have my Bible, and I'll have my journal, and I will just sit. Sometimes I write. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I read the Bible. Sometimes I don't. But I always talk to God. I can't pray silently. I'm too much of a spaz. If I pray silently, my mind's going to wander to what are the standings in the National League Central, and as they are right now, I'll weep. So I don't want to do that. 
So I will get up and walk around my office. Sometimes I'll walk down to this end of the building and I'll just walk and I have to verbally talk to God. The reason I'm sharing that with you is we all do it differently, but we all ought to do it. What is your tea time with the Lord? What is your coffee time with God? Morning, afternoon, or evening? Whenever you're at your best, that's when you ought to do it. When you're the most alert, the most attentive, when, if you're a night person or a vampire and you can go all night long, God bless you, do it then. I can't. I'm an old man, 9.30, I'm asleep. But I get up early in the morning and I love being in a quiet place where I can just talk to God. Because Jesus did. I'm not good at it. It's a discipline I have to make myself do. I don't want to. There's other things I'd rather be doing. But I find if Jesus needed to, then don't we? Even your preacher, don't we? You see, Jesus went and he, he sought God in this because he had to spend the whole night in prayer. John MacArthur says the word that's used, that he endured a night of prayer. He fought. It was difficult. He wanted God's strength. He wanted God's guidance. He knew the pressure was coming on him, and he knew he needed to pick those that he was going to train to take the church that didn't exist, but to create, build, and take the church into the world and offer it to everybody. So he went away and he prayed. He prayed for strength. He prayed for guidance. He endured it. I always wondered how Jesus prayed. I'm a pretty passive personality when I pray. I don't yell. I don't tell God jokes. I just talk. And sometimes I just walk and listen and I beg him. For three days, I've been asking you to tell me what you want me to do. I don't know. And I just walk. I just sit in the chair and I imagine God's presence. I always wonder how Jesus did it. Did he just sit under a rock and go, it's me. And God just downloaded all this information into him, gave him a map. I didn't know. Then I found a passage in Hebrews chapter five, verse seven, that was really good for my heart. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petition with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. So when you picture Jesus that night, before he chose those disciples who would go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, I love the fact that he submitted himself to God, but the way he did it was with real emotion, real relationship, and real desire. He wasn't this passive robot. He fought, he begged, he cried in the garden. He said, is there any other way we can do this? And I don't think he did that with this just steady voice. God, any other options? I love that Hebrews says, no, he pled, he fought, he battled. And as MacArthur points out, he endured that night. And then the part that blows my mind is, in the midst of all of this, looking at his disciples, you see, Jesus had a lot of disciples, but he was going to call 12 apostles. And there's a difference. A disciple is a learner, a follower, an apprentice. An apostle is a commissioned messenger. Someone who has a particular message that's being sent by one to a group on behalf of the one. The apostles would be the one that would bring the gospel message to the world upon Jesus' ascension. He had hundreds. In fact, if I did my calculations properly, and I I could have missed something because I had to do it quickly... I believe the largest number of disciples identified in Scripture is 7,000. At one point in time, there were 7,000 people that called themselves disciples. But Jesus was going after 12 from that group, and he asked God to lead him. And then he knew from the Old Testament, and God told him, I'm going to give you the 12 that you're to pick, but one of them will be your betrayer. And he did it anyway. This is the moment where it won't shock you when I tell you I'm nothing like Jesus. This moment, I absolutely know I'm nothing like him. 
Can you imagine? God said, here's the 12 you're going to call. And it wasn't like one of them is going to betray you. John 64 says, Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and would betray him. He knew it was Judas. And he picked him, and listen to me carefully, he loved him, he served him, he fed him, he provided for him, he rescued him from a boat. When the storm blew up on the, the sea or the lake, would any of us have been upset if everyone would have been saved but Judas? Would we have all gone, good call, Jesus? You know, all of a sudden, Judas gets flicked out of the boat, and everybody, what was that? Jesus like, oh, everybody, get to the shore. You know, I don't know. But in this moment, he saved him. You see, what I need us to understand is what Jesus did that night was great for those 12, but it had a bigger significance to it. Second point I want to make is simply this. The significance wasn't initially perceivable. In other words, when he chose them, if the headline of the Israel Globe that day, or the Galilee Times, when Jesus came back and said, here are the 12 that I'm going to commission to take my message in all the world, the headline of the paper that day would have been, what? These guys were nobodies. There was nothing amazing about them. Were they even qualified? And the answer is, kind of. Not an over, not a compelling reason to bring these 12 in. The Apostle Paul would speak to the way God works in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. In his introduction to that church, he gives us an insight into what God does. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. If any of us think for one minute, including me, most of all, if I think for one moment that I'm doing God a favor by following Jesus, I have no clue what I'm talking about. The only favor that's ever been extended in the gospel is his inviting every single one of us to be a part of it. He didn't do it because we were qualified. He didn't do it because we were talented. He didn't certainly do it because he needed us. He chose us because he loved us. And he wanted us to experience all that following Jesus meant. You see, when you look at these 12 men, where were the massive intellects? Where were the great writers or great orators? He chose four fishermen, a despised tax collector, a traitorous treasurer, and other commoners. No rabbis, no scholars, no elites. The headline of the paper would have been, what? Or them? There was nothing about them that made you think, world changers, all century team, these are the guys who are going to change the world on the day of Pentecost. When Peter would preach the first fully invested, understood gospel message, the crowd had two decisions, or two two choices when they looked at them. They thought, who trained them? And the other was, they're hammered, they're all drunk. Because they'd seen these men with Jesus before, and they realized Jesus didn't hang out with the social elites. He didn't hang out with the intellectual religious uh, minds. He didn't hang out with the great, rich, accomplished people in culture. He hung out with people nobody hung out with, including these 12. Why would God do that? To remind us he doesn't need us. He wants us. We need him. 
So he goes to those that are poor and downcast and broken and humbled by life and have no means of escape. And he says, I'm here for you because the others don't think they need him. So truthfully, when you look on a Sunday morning, you can look out in the parking lot and be impressed by some of the vehicles. You can see the way some people dress and others dress and you can decide, well, maybe this is person successful and this person is. I'm here to tell you, the reason we're all in here is we needed God and he was kind enough to be our solution. We bring nothing to him that he doesn't already have except a willingness to follow him and that's what the 12 had, a willingness to follow Jesus. In fact, when you look completely, the only thing they had in common, for the best of my research, the only thing these guys had in common was they were all Jewish. And we think in, you know, in America, of all places, this melting pot, or supposedly, we look on that and think, well, that's not a big deal today. It was then because Paul would say, it's through the Jews that we Gentiles were invited into the kingdom. So the only thing they had in common was, or two, they needed Jesus and they were Jewish. And he chose them because they were willing to follow him. You see, what we've learned is Jesus made a significant choice in a, in a significant way. And that significance wasn't initially understood. Which brings me toward the last point, though, that builds all of this. You see, here's what I want us to understand. That what we see the disciples needed in Jesus, we all need as much. What we see Jesus giving the disciples, we need just like they need. And the calling on the lives of those disciples is the same calling on every one of our lives who call him our Lord and call him our Savior. You see, by the power of God, their significance highlighted all mankind's hope. The reason it didn't seem like a big deal when he did it is when you see now what these 12 men were able to do, or 11 Actually, 12, because what Judas did was to the benefit of all of us in the strangest of ways. It was absolutely critical, Jesus knew, that before he was murdered by the powerful people, that he needed to spend time and train these 12 men to be the apostles, to be the ones that were sent out, to be the ones with the specific message. He knew this had to happen. So he went to his father and he said, tell me the 12 you want me to call from this group, knowing one of them would be the one who betrayed him. But he said, tell me these 12. He went down, he called them from the crowd. He brought them to himself and he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And he trained them. He trained them in what was coming. He trained them in what the truth was. He trained them in the promise. And here's the unique part for me when I, when I study this. It's one of the, my favorite Bible studies I ever ventured into. I learned so much from it. It just made my tail wag over and over. If you take a description of these 12 men in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you compare them to what those men became in the book of Acts, it almost seems like it's a different group of men. Scared, know-it-alls, slow to understand Jesus, always arguing with his methods. You come into the book of Acts, no longer scared, full of courage, willing to die for the cause of Christ, preaching the gospel in the purest form and living it out so that churches were planted all over the world. What happened between here and here? They spent time with Jesus. They received the inspiration of his word and the inspiration of his spirit and they became the apostles that changed the world. The significance gives all of us hope. You see, they, Jesus said, follow him. And they did. They had an opportunity and they took it. 
They left everything behind that they had. They left their boats. They left their businesses. They gave all of that away to follow Jesus. And then he called them to do something greater. We're going to jump to this down the road, but in Luke chapter 22, Jesus says this to these 12 men. I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, God has sent me to build a kingdom, and I'm inviting you to be the first into my kingdom. And then you are going to bless all nations. In fact, you will even sit over the 12 tribes of Israel and you will rule them, you will judge them. You see, this is not an insignificant role. These men are not just 12 men that are mentioned by name. These men were willing to place themselves in a deeper level of discipleship than the crowds. Because I told you that there's 7,000 people gathered one day and Jesus preached one sermon and all that remained was 12. You can be a part of the crowd that follows Jesus for a season. The question of the morning is, will you be someone who follows him for a lifetime? Will you trust him and give up the things of the world and play the role that he's offering you in this massive movement of redemption and reconciliation? The book of Revelation is one of the books that the Apostle John was inspired when he was arrested and he was secluded on an island. He was a prisoner and he received a vision from God. And that vision is complicated, it's intense, there's these reoccurring seven bowls, seven seals, there's uh, all of these images where John is trying to put into words what God revealed to him. And by the time, I don't know about you, by the time I get to chapter 20 of Revelation, there's 22 chapters, when I get to chapter 20, I'm exhausted. And I just love reading chapters 20, 21, and 22 because I finally understand something. And when I get to it, I can gloss over What I want you to to notice is in Revelation chapter 21. Listen to what's said. It had a great high wall. It's talking about the holy city coming from heaven down to earth. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three great gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Interesting. Yeah, I'd like to offer God a little help here. He had it reversed. You see, the foundation should have been the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob, right? Because they were the ones who Jesus came to us through. The promise of these 12 and the promised land and the division of everything and all the promises God made to them. So they should have been the foundation, right? Because the church and Jesus came from them forward. But God says, no, no, I need you to understand These 12 disciples that will become my messengers, they're the foundational pillars. Everything that's been built will be built on what they do. And the gates and the entrance into the holy city will come. Because remember, Jesus was the gate. And the sheep will come into the gate when called by his voice. But the 12 gates will represent the 12 nations of Israel, the shepherd boys. And the promise that God made that you will enter into my kingdom through Abraham. And Jesus just shows us that these 12 men are the reason that the kingdom is being built because of Jesus. And by faith in Jesus, they did the work that he asked them to do. They went into all the world and preached the gospel. And throughout the entire world, Jesus is being preached. Even today, billions of people will hear about Jesus Christ. And no other historical figure even matches the impact that Jesus has had. And in this moment, those 12 men 
they did what they were asked to do because they believed in the one who asked them. It made all the difference in the world. I want to show you some facts about them. These 12 men were the first spiritual leaders of the new Israel in the church. They were the ones who were given, not by their own authority, remember, not by their own power. They were given the privilege of being spiritual leaders because they were led. They'd spent time with Jesus. I cannot overemphasize this. As much as some may challenge me on this, I cannot overemphasize. To follow Jesus is to spend time with Jesus in the word, in prayer, and in obedience. There's no other way to be a disciple. You can't say you follow a man you don't follow. Spending your tea time, your coffee time, your quiet time, whatever you want to call it, in the presence of God, I beg you, carve out whatever you need to carve out to make the most important things the most important. Because our leadership and our spiritual influence does not come by our qualifications, it comes by Him. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul wrote, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. They received truth by divine revelation. By divine revelation. Jesus talked about this. He, he read a psalm written by David, and he gave credit to God for having said it. He read the law as given by Moses, and he gave God credit for being the one who inspired it. Ephesians 3, 5 says, To them was made known the mystery of Christ, and it has now been revealed through his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. They didn't preach a human message. They preached a message given to them by Christ, having spent time with him and having been trained by him and then filled with the Holy Spirit, they were able to bring it all together and share that with us. They were the source of doctrine through the Holy Spirit. They were the source of doctrine. Doctrine is one of those church words we use about the truth, the foundational principles of truth that are undeniable. Acts 2.42 says, when the church got together, they studied the apostles' doctrine. This group of men who didn't get him, now got him. And through the power of the word and the power of the spirit, they were able to declare what mattered. They were given to edify the church. I don't know if you use the word edify in your everyday life, outside of a building like this, but it means to strengthen, to encourage, to give cause to. Paul would say in Ephesians 4, he gave to the church apostles and prophets for the building up or edification of the church. They were the first preachers. They were the first teachers. And they did not teach their own thoughts. They taught what Jesus taught them. That's why spending time with Jesus gives you the answers to the questions the world's asking. And they were examples of great power. A great power. Casting out demons. Healing the sick. Raising the dead. Preaching truth. Breaking chains. Breaking those strongholds. 2 Corinthians 12.12 12, The things that mark an apostle... Signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance. I got to spend a couple of days just pondering 2 Corinthians 12, 12. I know I'd read it before, but I never picked it up. And something just led me to spend some time considering this. And then it, what got to me was this. The mark of an apostle is that they do these things with great perseverance. In other words, they had to be patient with their audience like Jesus was patient with them. They had to wait for people to grow into this and understand it, and so should we. I told you a few moments ago that the reason I'm glad I got to teach this text is because it reminds me that if Jesus 
had to spend time in prayer with God and he was refreshed by that and he was strengthened by that and he was guided by that that I need to too. I need to carve out whatever it takes to just sit with my cup of tea in the presence of God and not remind myself that he exists, but remind myself that he's my hope. You see, and I also told you a few moments ago that one of the reasons this is important is what was expected of them is also expected of us. And what was given to them has been given to us. And what they did, we are able to do. Church, can you hear me? That these were not just Hall of Fame members that that are so good at what they did that none of us could aspire to that. We were told that greater things we would do than they did because it's God's will for that. You see, they were spiritual leaders and we can be too because they were trained by Jesus, by his word and his spirit. They were given divine revelation and so have we been given the same. They testified to what true doctrine was to the Holy Spirit and we get to do the same thing. The world wants to debate about issues that don't matter. What matters is Jesus Christ crucified and raised again with the promise of hope for any man or woman who will follow him. They were given to edify the church, and so are we. The church is not about whether we get what we want. It's always about whether God gets what God wants. And what he wants is every single one of us to know the power available to us by simply following Jesus with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And they were given as examples of God's power, and so were we. The ability for every one of us to live out what we sang a few moments ago. I, Mark Christian... I've decided I'm going to follow Jesus. I would love to follow him with you because you encourage my heart and strengthen me. But I say this as no boast. I say it as my commitment. I will follow him if none of you do. Not because I'm better, because he is. You see, the hope is I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. If he calls me to death, I have to go to death. If he calls me to life, which he has, I will follow him into life. But I always must remain behind him. I must be led by him. These 12 men said yes. And by saying yes, they have changed our lives. Have they not? And you and I have the same apostolic ability to be messengers of one message to this world. Jesus Christ is the answer to any question you can ask. As goofy as it sounds, it'll always come back to his truth. It'll always come back to his holiness it'll always come back to his goodness. I have decided to follow Jesus. Have you? And if you want to know what that means to follow him, this church is not confined to Sunday mornings. Come see us in the foyer. There's a number of us that'd love to have coffee with you. Love to answer your questions. No arms put behind your back. We're not going to berate you. We're not going to force you to do anything. We're going to tell you why we follow him because we believe when you see the Jesus we know, you'll follow him too. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. How about you? Let's stand. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.